Good morning. Thank you for being here. If you would, take a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 4. We've had a chance to sing to God, to pray to him, to commune with him through his son Jesus and with each other. And now we have an opportunity to open his word and actually hear from him and allow him to be our teacher. I'd like to pause before we uh, hear from Jesus and, uh, and, and take a moment to say thank you to God for our brother Larry Smith, who passed away this week. Uh, m- most of you know who Larry is and realize that he's been a big part of this congregation with his uh, beautiful wife, Jackie, who chose to be here today and be with the family. Uh, and and it, it strikes me that he's not here sitting by you, and I haven't seen that for so many years. Uh, Larry is special to me, and Jackie's special to me, because when Laura and I first moved to Anchorage so many years ago, back in the 90s, uh, do you realize that Larry is one of the first people who invited me to go out to lunch? Ken, you were part of that. As he, when you all were serving as elders of this congregation, Larry was one of the shepherds of this congregation. And he and Jackie are some of the first people that invited Laura and I to go and eat at their house uh, and welcomed us into the community. And so I've always felt, felt welcome. But I would like, uh, for those of you that, that knew Larry and appreciate the work and the life that he lived among us and what God was able to do through him, if we could just take a moment to say thank you to God uh, for the life that he lived. Uh, let's take a moment to pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, as it says in the scripture that was presented to us today in Psalms 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of your saints. It's a reminder to us that from our point of view, what needs to be mourned and lamented from your perspective is something that is a reason for joy and celebration. And we want to pause and say thank you for providing uh, Larry Smith to this world in this place and time as you did for the life that you lived through him and for the hope that he passed on to us and carries on that one day you will give life to his mortal body again and we long for that day when you come back and call each of us home we pause now to say thank you for the service that he gave to you and to others for the husband that he was for the man that he was among this in in and through this congregation, the service he provided to the not just the church but to this community, and to the school system, and to all those who uh, appreciate and benefited his time with us, we pause now to say thank you to you because we realize that it is only through your power that you brought him into this world in this place and time, and then through him you've passed life on to others and invited us all into that same great story that will one day end with life being given to all of us. We pray that you watch over his wife, Jackie, that you give us eyes to see those holes that now need to be filled and to provide a presence uh, for her. Give us eyes to see what is needed this week and in the coming months and year uh, to share in her lament and her mourning and also in her joy in those times of praise to you and pray that you will watch over her. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, who gives us this ability to grieve, but to grieve and as those who have hope of that day when you restore life to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there was a big storm this week 
best one in 20 years, depending on your perspective, or worst in 20 years? <laughs> Are you a best or a worst kind of person? I suppose how you view a snowstorm that dumps almost two feet of snow in a big part of Anchorage, whether you view that as something good or bad depends, or it's a factor of your age, probably your work, <laughs> probably other ways that that storm had an impact on you. And you realize the forecasters looking at the patterns, looking at the, the, uh, all the data are able to forecast that starting this afternoon there will be another storm. You're all aware of this, right? I'm watching your faces to see. Does that make you smile? Or does that make you, oh, yeah, I heard a big yes. Again, I, I was expecting that from younger voices, but uh, <laughs> some of the older voices are saying, yes, another snowstorm. Yeah, whether or not you view a storm as something welcoming or not depends on what you're going to do with that time and with that information. But you realize not all storms are something that some would be happy about. Some storms are deadly. Some storms carry such power that they leave only devastation in their wake, and people are left with loss. People die. And storms can be very scary. Some of you have been in those kind of storms, either as pilots or as uh, on, on boats, as captains. You know what that's like to be in a massive storm and to fear for what's going to happen to property and to, and to life. So I thought it would be appropriate this week for us to hear not just something that Jesus says, but let's watch what he did here in Mark chapter, chapter 4. Now, Mark chapter 4 is a, a passage or a, a series of passages that Mark, the writer of this gospel, pulls together, and he lets us hear at first things that Jesus says. But Jesus, in this point, is only speaking in parables. So many people are gathered to hear him that he has to sit in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he's just offshore sitting in the boat as he gives his parables to the people. Some people get it, many do not. And so privately, as we see here, Jesus would not speak to them except in parables, but privately to his own disciples, he would explain everything. And so imagine Jesus is in this boat at the seashore when we come to today's event. And Mark tells us that on that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, remember them as the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So do you have the picture in mind? Jesus is on the sea, in this boat, disciples are in the boat, several boats. It's sort of this flotilla, if you will, of boats moving across the sea. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, in the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
So there on the sea, it's late in the evening, probably night at this point. Darkness has come and a great windstorm comes up. Do you know what the word uh, that's used in Matthew and Mark when describing this event, what the word for great is? Have you ever experienced a great storm? We actually had uh, here in Alaska, you remember earlier this year, we had not just a storm that somebody said, well, that'll be interesting to live through. That'll be a lot of shoveling after that snow. Earlier this summer, we had a great massive storm hit the western part of Alaska. And if you were to read the Nome Nugget after that storm, do you know how they described that storm? They called it a mega storm. And do you realize that's exactly the word that Mark uses here? When it uses this word great, the word great in Greek, is megale. It's where we get the word mega. And so Mark wants you to understand this is not just a, a strong wind. This is a mega wind, a mega windstorm. And so you can imagine, especially those of you that have done some fishing and you've been out on waters during a great windstorm, you know what that's like to try to keep the boat pointed towards the waves so that you don't capsize, so the waves don't come over. And the disciples, no doubt, were doing everything they could to save themselves in this great windstorm, but they could not do it. The boat was filling up with water. And where was Jesus in all of this? He's in the back of the boat, asleep. And the disciples turned to him, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke. Literally, it says, he raised up. I don't want to read too much into this, but it's worth reflecting on what's about to happen. He raises up. You see this story over and over again. And then he speaks, and all goes calm. Jesus rose up, and he speaks to the sea and to the wind, and he says, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Guess what the word great is here? Mega. It was a mega storm. They wake Jesus up. He stands and looks out at the wind and the waves, says, peace, be still. And as Tim pointed out earlier, for a moment, you get to stand in the presence of raw power because the sea and the wind go calm. And not just a little calm, it becomes a mega calm. Can you imagine that? I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and uh, on one of the tours, we went out early in the morning, and I got to see the Sea of Galilee, not when it was stormy and dangerous, but when it was mega calm, first thing in the morning, like glass across the sea. You've seen waters that are, are like that. What type of raw power does it take to take a mega storm and make it a mega calm? I want to pause for just a minute to address a worldview issue. And that is that you and I live within a culture in which the air that we breathe is a materialistic type worldview that says that all that exists is what we can see and sense, taste, touch, hear, measure. But we fail to recognize, in fact, all scientists recognize, and all of you who are in the sciences recognize, that all elements obey certain principles, certain what we call laws. And that includes the weather. All of the elements that come into the weather obey certain forces. We know about four major forces of gravity and weak nuclear forces and strong nuclear forces and electromagnetism. And when you add the rotational forces of the earth, it causes these weather cycles that move across the earth. All of these are just forces that can be explained and followed and measured And you can use them to predict even great storms. The fact that they will be able to predict within a few inches how much snow will fall at your house is because we're able to look at these 
laws that all elements follow, and we can predict what's going to come. But do you know what we do not have the ability to do? We did not have the ability 2,000 years ago, and we still do not have the ability. Despite our ability to predict the storm, we do not have the ability to control those elements. For even though the elements of all creation have to follow certain laws, you understand there is a law giver. And someone stands up in the boat that day and speaks out to the wind and the waves as if he, principally, alone, is the one who knows how all of these laws work and shows mastery over them. This holiday season, if someone were to walk into your kitchen and just start throwing around different elements, uh, different ingredients of flour and sugar and water and baking soda and, and fruit and whatever else, and then out of the oven a few hours later comes this incredible holiday dessert. If somebody just threw that together, you could be pretty well assured of two things. First, this person must know the recipe. And second, I bet they've done this before. That's exactly the point that you're meant to get when you read through this event in Mark, is when Jesus stands up and looks out at the winds and the waves and says, peace, be still, and immediately all of the elements of creation seem to fall in line and obey him. You are meant to ask the same or to recognize these same two things. This person seems to know the recipe. This Jesus of Nazareth seems to know the laws that every one of these elements obey, and it appears to be that he's done this before. Hear this clearly. When you read events like this that are called miracles, you are not being asked to suspend your belief. It's quite the opposite. A miracle is not a suspension of the laws of reality or the laws of nature. A miracle is a show of power as we learned earlier, a show of power over the elements of creation. And what you see in this event is one man who stands up in the boat and shows mastery over all of these elements of creation. Peace, he says, be still. And immediately this great mega storm becomes a mega calm. Do you realize to affect that change, I'm getting too far into this point, but just to close it out, that means that he had mastery over more than just what was happening over the Sea of Galilee that day. It's not like just there was suddenly this funnel of good weather. You know, This would mean having mastery over the whole system because weather systems are connected to other weather systems, which is connected, again, to the rotation of the whole earth and gravity and all of these other... For he had mastery over the whole system. And everything falls to a great calm... And then he turns to the disciples and he asks two questions. I think it's worth reflecting on these two questions. These are not questions Jesus is asking you. It's questions he asked them. And it's worth reflecting on why did he ask these? And what would be their answer? The first question is this. Why are you so afraid? Now that word for afraid in this case is different than the word Mark will use here in a few minutes. The word that he uses here is is actually a word that translators, I haven't seen Uh, choose to use. It's the word cowardly. It's the word delios. It's where we get the word delirious. Jesus is saying, why are you so delirious? Why are you so beside yourself? Why are you being so cowardly? In our class this morning, Scott Geyer was talking about in this culture, there is a shame and honor kind of system. And Jesus is turning to them and using a phrase that was considered shameful. He's basically saying, why are you acting in such a shameful way? Why are you acting as cowards? Why are you so afraid? And it's worth asking, 
Why were they so afraid? Why were they acting cowardly? As if Jesus is saying, why aren't you acting honorably? What would keep them from doing that? Well, the obvious answer, the first one is, it's in the midst of a storm. It was a deadly storm. This is not the kind of storm you look forward to because tomorrow you might get out of school. This is the type of storm that destroys and still destroys in Israel. Earlier this year, they had a mega storm on the Sea of Galilee that destroyed that, uh, that walkway in front of what's now called Tiberias, you know, that big city that's there on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And they still have these storms that are devastating and destroy all kinds of properties. As far as I know, there was no loss of life in this particular storm. But the point is, these storms come up from time to time, and they are deadly, and they are destructive. Why were the disciples afraid? Because they caught themselves out on the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of one of these mega storms. They had reason to be afraid. But I think for the disciples, if you remember that these were Jewish men, you'll remember that they had reason beyond just the storm to be afraid. You heard an allusion to this as we were preparing for communion today. Remember that in their lives, they had grown up hearing these stories. The air that they breathed was from their Old Testament scriptures. And week after week and year after year, they would have heard these stories about the sea and God being the only one who can calm the sea. And so their minds would go back, you can imagine, maybe not in the moment as they're bailing water and trying to save themselves, but certainly as they reflected on this event, their mind would go back to the very beginning in Genesis 1, where they they had said and quoted many times, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth which was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the, catch this, deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And it's from here that God separates the heavens from the earth, and then don't miss this, and then also the waters, in which the waters were always seen from then on as this this place of chaos, this place of danger, this place where evil resides. And so the waters, the depth, the unknown was a place that was terrifying all the way back from the beginning. Their mind might have gone to the great flood in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, where we're told that God because of evil throughout humanity, God wipes every living thing off the face of the earth, except for Noah, his family, and some chosen animals. And they're placed in the ark, and we're told there that because of that great flood, all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Can you imagine being out on the sea in the midst of this storm and this being one of the stories that's in your heritage, that's deep within your cultural identity? Or perhaps turn over to Job, and you heard many of the passages already read from Job, in which, as Job is having this struggle, this conversation with God, we're told that the waters, the depths, the deep, is this place where chaos resides, and only God has mastery over the deep. And then in chapter 38, when God finally allows Job to stand up, and God says, now I will question you. And one of the questions God asks of Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? 
Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and then come and say to you, here we are. And Job, before God in that moment, had to remain silent. What was that like to be a group of men who had this story as a part of their heritage? And then their minds would go to Jonah. When Jonah, running away from God, is out on the great sea, this would be the Mediterranean Sea, but the Lord that day hurled a great wind upon the sea, because remember, Jonah was running away from God instead of following God's command to go to Nineveh and to tell them this good news or to draw them or to call them to repentance back to God. Jonah did not want to do that. And so he's going the opposite direction, and the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and that ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he lain down and was fast asleep. You start to see parallels, don't you? So that the captain came down to Jonah and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper arise, call out to your God, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so this was a story that would have been in the minds of every one of those disciples. And then throughout the Psalms, you'll see this over and over and over again in the songs that they would have sung in their synagogue, in their daily uh, practice. They would have sung about God's power over the great deep where chaos and evil you know, resides. I'll give you one example of that comes from Psalm 107. No doubt, these disciples in that boat had sung this psalm, and many of them probably had it memorized. When they sang, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say it, say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And then as you go through that psalm, I'll just give you some samples. What's causing their trouble? Well, some wandered in the desert wastes, finding no way to, or city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Go to verse 10. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. But look what happens when we get to verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunk men and were at their wit's end. Do you think there's a point at which the disciples on the sea realized we're living out this song that we've sung? from the time we were little boys. But that's not the end of that psalm. That psalm goes on to say, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the peoples and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Why are you so afraid? Jesus asked. And now you can see that it was much more than just facing a storm. For them, this was a story in which they found themselves apart. 
And Jesus is asking, don't you know the end of that story? And so that's why Jesus asked the second question, and that is, where is your faith? Have you still no faith? Remember that faith is not wishful thinking or belief in something in spite of not having evidence for it being true. Faith is the opposite of that. Faith is a firm conviction in the truth of something because you have seen the evidence and because you are confident of its truth. And Jesus asked them, where is your faith? Now, I used to think reading this story that what Jesus was saying was something like, why didn't you wake me up earlier? <laughs> you know, where's your, why did, well, you're trying to bail water, you're trying to manage this bow on your own, you should wake me up, where's your faith? I've since changed my mind over the years, reading this passage many times, but more importantly, living through times of terrifying uh, situations. And I'll let you fill in the blank there. I won't tell you my stories, but you know yours. What, is, what are the things that you've faced where you feel like you are in a storm, predictable but uncontrollable? The times in my life when I've lived through there, those, and the longer I've walked with Jesus, I've come to think that, that what Jesus was really asking the disciples is, why did I have to wake up to do this? Don't you realize what power I have placed within your hands. You realize this only takes two words. Why did I have to get up to say these two words? <laughs> Peace be still. I have given you the authority to do this. It's a little bit of speculation, but I think that's what Jesus was saying here. Where is your faith? Do you realize the power to which I have given you access all the resources of heaven are yours. Now, the reason I say that, if you look ahead a few chapters to Mark chapter 11, Jesus tries to teach the same lesson again. When this is after Jesus has uh, spoken to a fig tree and said, may fruit never come from you again, and the fig tree actually withers. And Peter later comes up and says, hey, did you notice that fig tree died? <laughs> and Jesus, teaching them about that, says, yeah, what, what did you expect otherwise? Jesus answers him, says, you realize you have the same power. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. What is Jesus teaching his disciples? You understand that he's not saying here that if you don't like the skyline of Anchorage and you prefer to see the sunrise come up over the horizon and you would like to move the mountains from the east side of town to the west, if you just speak the word, then it will happen. He, he's not talking here about moving geography. He's, he's saying, use your imagination. What type of power would it take to take flat top from the east side of town and put it over on the western horizon? What type of power would it take to move that? And Jesus says, do you realize that's the power that you have access to? That if you are to, to ask anything in my name, it will be done if you believe that you have what you have asked for. This is not a blank check saying, hey, it's Christmas time. Ask for whatever prize you want. No, this is the statement of a good employer who says, you and my employee have a job to do. Whatever you need to get that job done, you ask. And it will, be, it will be done. 
And eventually the disciples get this. We read later, I don't have the slide for this, but you remember in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John are walking into Jerusalem and there's a beggar who's there at the gate. And do you remember the beggar asked for alms and Peter looks at him and you've got to get this, this picture that, that uh, Peter kind of pats his pockets and he says, uh, gold and silver I don't have. But here that same man who was in the sea who was a coward in the face of the storm you see this whole reversal where he pats his pockets and says, but you know, I do have access to something that may be of interest to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And do you realize that that man's muscles were restored and the nerves were repaired and that man stood up, leaps to his feet and goes into the temple dancing basically with him, rejoicing that he can walk. And everyone is amazed. And then Peter says to the people, why do you look at us as if it were by our power or our pious actions that this happened? And then he teaches them, this happened because of the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to invite them to listen to Jesus. Do you hear the, the, what Jesus was teaching the disciples there in the boat that day? Is that you have access to a source of power beyond anything that you can imagine. And Jesus was saying, I expect you to use it. And do you see what is written right next in that verse, Mark chapter 4, at the end of the story? Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the very next line says, and they were filled with great fear. Guess what that word great is? Mega. It was a mega storm. Jesus speaks to it. It becomes mega calm. And there, standing in the boat, Realizing they're standing in the presence of raw power. They fear with what is called a mega fear. Now this is a different word than the word used earlier. This is the word phobos. And this word mega fear has a little bit of a double meaning. It means fear that you would bow to. This is where we get the the use of the term fear when we're using it as respect. When you respect God, you fear God. You recognize his power. And so this word can be used, and in this context, is meant to display what it's like when people realize they're in the presence of Jesus and they break down in worship because of that great fear. And then they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now this is the question that Mark intends for you to contemplate. Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The disciples asked it this way. Who is this who acts like the one hovering over the waters, who brings order out of chaos? Who is this who brings his chosen few through the deadly waters in a boat just as he did with Noah? Who is this who speaks to the clouds and the lightning and unlike Job, they answer him. Who is this who sleeps in the boat like Jonah, but who calms the storm like God? And who is this to be the one who was spoken of or seems to be the one spoken of in the Psalms? In fact, did you catch this in Psalm 107? I don't usually go backwards, but I need to show you this. They cried to the Lord. Look at that first verse. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. Did you see who, who is it that made the storm be still? 
Now, those of you who have followed Christ for a long time may totally brush over this, but you need to know for the disciples, this was a big deal. What's written here in the Psalms is the word Lord. It's all in capital letters. That's the name of God. That's his holy name. Who is it that calmed the waters? It was Yahweh. It was God, the one who created everything from the beginning. And the disciples standing in the boat that day would have realized they were standing in the boat, not just with a carpenter or tecton from Nazareth. They were standing in the boat with the one who created it all in the first place. They were standing in the boat with God himself. And so you're meant to ask, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The answer is the living God. As you go about this week, that's the question to contemplate. As you go about your work going into this week, as you go about the activities with your family in the next few weeks, as you think about your role in this community and what role you play, what service you offer to your neighbors, to your community, to the city as a whole, as you think about your role in this congregation and through this congregation, how the good news of following Jesus is being given, it's still a light in this place and time. As you contemplate your role in that, ask this question, who is it that you have come to worship today? It is the one who calmed the storm. It's the one who has control over all reality. He is the one who restores everything to its intended state, including your soul. He is the one who gives you access to the resources of of heaven. Ask anything in my name, he said. This was for you to hear, just as it was meant for them. It is by faith in him that you go about your work this week. It is by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection that your sins are lifted away and you are made to be the person God created you to be. It is by faith in the God who makes the waters still that all this is possible. And it is the spirit, the power within the spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, who will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Who is this that we have come to worship today? It is him who has control over all. As you contemplate that, I hope for those of you who are thinking of following Jesus, that this will be reason for you to say, I want to follow that man, the one who has control over all reality. If you followed him for many years, I hope it's a reminder that this is not just a religious exercise. You are following the one who has power over all of creation. And Jesus has given you, because of what he did for you, he has given you access to all the resources of heaven to be about his work in this place and time. May that be a reminder to all of us. God bless the reading of his word and our attempts this week to put it into practice. If there's something in that for which we can pray for you, we ask that you come forward now as we stand and sing.